accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Penske File. We're talking about Deep Space Nine. Wes isn't here. Dad's gone. I am now in charge. He's had enough of you people and he decided to leave and, well, he's dealing with his his real family. So uh, now you all feel bad. Um, we are talking about The Ascent today, which is the ninth episode of the fifth season, aired on November 25th, 1996, written by Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf, directed by Alan Croker. In this episode, Quark and Odo must work together to survive on an inhospitable world. Meanwhile, Nog returns to the station from Starfleet Academy, and today I am joined by Darren Mooney. Darren, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm glad to be the uh, Quark to your Odo, or the Odo to your Quark, depending on how this particular podcast goes. I'm I'm good, Clay. How are you? I'm good. Uh, well, you're going to be more like the Jake Sisko to my Nog, because we're not doing anything but bicep curls for the next hour. So Okay. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk about The Ascent. Have I ever told you how much I hate that smug, superior attitude of yours? Have I ever told you how much I hate your endless whining, your pathetic greed, your idiotic little schemes? Well, I hate... What do you hate? You. Well, that's fine with me. Because I hate you, too. You're nothing but a petty thief. You're an arrogant brute. Lecher! Freak! Broad! Fascist! So, um, this episode uh, answers the question that I think a lot of Star Trek fans probably had up to this point, which is, uh, what would happen if you did the odd couple twice in the same episode? Um, and I think, uh, you know, now that Wes is gone, I think we can really uh, let loose with our opinions and really, uh, say some stuff that we're, we've been too, um, timid to say previously. And I'm going to start off by saying, uh, yeah, this episode was fine. How do you feel, Darren? I love this episode. Um, I actually yeah. really, really, really love this episode, unsurprisingly. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I would be a sort of a big fan of this. I was kind of curious, actually, Clay, because as far as, you know, from listening to past episodes, you are very much like the passenger on this little sort of ride that's been taken. Wes has obviously seen it before. This is your mm-hmm. first trip through Deep Space Nine. That's kind of, I've kind of been wondering, because obviously, you know, you, you check in every once in a while as you're doing it. But it's kind of like, now you're in the driving seat. It's like, I was wondering, how is your Deep Space Nine experience going? Uh, it's going well. Um, I... You know, I've I've been on record previously as saying it's a show that I'd never watched at the time and kind of wrote off because it always seemed like the uh, the most boring parts of TNG, but like all the time. Uh, but having watched it and and getting this deep into it, I think it's 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 probably I, I it might quality wise be the best show uh, uh, the, of of the ones that I've watched um, at least. As it gets into this season, they're they're really uh, they've really hit a stride with their characters, and um, and uh, everybody kind of knows what they're doing, and they know how to handle all these characters, uh, which is why I think an episode like this actually works. And uh, you know, I said it was fine, but I I, I get I don't know. I, I guess I'm on the fence with this one because I enjoyed it, I guess, but this seems more like fan fiction to me than a than an episode of television that you'd want to spend a lot of money on yeah, well that, that's kind of fair because you, you did mention a moment ago that it's like the wor- the most boring parts of tng and locked into an episode like this is this is a standard a b plot in terms of obviously you have what's happening with odo and you know quark on a planet and oh by the way jake and cisco are roomies except both of those plots would be b plots on a next generation episode they just happen to be sandwiched yes, together yes. which is a very strange proposition if you're approaching it from that angle i think i like it a great deal more than you do because i kind of i i like the way that deep space nine has done this where like if the next generation did this with like data and geordie get stuck on a planet while Riker has to deal with wesley as his new roommate that would possibly be the worst star trek episode (laughs) of all time whereas when deep space nine does it like it's reached a point where it's like i can kind of go along with that i completely understand 
what you're saying where this feels like a throwaway episode where it's like sort of a, you know, why would you spend money doing this? Uh, but I kind of like. I kind of, I, I oh. kind of want to see that episode of TNG now because I want to see if they get into uh, whether or not Data starts running the numbers on whether or not it makes sense to kill Jordy. <laughs> the the hard cross sort of like Data's just sitting there, sort of whittling, sharpening a little uh, a little stick, and Jordy's like, "That's for hunting, right?" And Jordy and Data responds with, "In a manner of speaking." Uh, but yeah, it's kind of yes. it's it's. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it's got that sort of. These characters who you've spent enough time with that you kind of you're invested in this in a way that I don't think you would be with TNG. And you're entirely right that this would be on any other Star Trek show. Like this would be the worst episode of the season, a throwaway episode. And in fact, like this is the kind of episode if you were like if you were doing a modern TV season, like I mean, obviously, like Discovery has what, 15 episodes a season, but most prestige dramas now Mm -hmm. have like 10 to 13. This would be one of the ones that you would cut because this is completely expendable. In fact, like, I mean, it spoils very little to say that there's very little in this episode that is important, in inverted commas, towards, like, the future arc of Deep Space Nine. It's not like you'll be sitting down in the middle of the sixth season going, well, I'm really glad I watched that episode where Quark and Odo spent some time together climbing what looked like the Paramount logo. But I do think that... This, uh, is, this is the best episode to fold your laundry to. That's what I have to say. That's what I can say. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I really liked it. I kind of admire that almost sort of throwaway aspect of it because it feels like... You know, like in 90s television, where you had these sorts of plots all the time, where it was like, you know, you're watching a cop show and one of them is, oh, well, we're dealing with a child murder. And the B plot is, mm-hmm. yes, but one of the detectives has a birthday party. And it kind of, you don't get those plots anymore. And I kind of <laughs> like, this is in a weird stage of television where it's like you get that level of plotting. And I think Deep Space Nine sort of did it very, very well, because I, I actually wouldn't mind folding laundry with most of the characters. Except... Yeah, I... Th- Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I, w- I was going to name one of the characters, but then I felt mean. Anyway, go ahead there, Glenn. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think I think that's why you, you say if this was a TNG episode, it would be the worst episode of the season. And you're probably not wrong. Um, <clears throat> I think the difference being that Deep Space Nine has, I would say overall, I think their acting quality is probably a little bit better than TNG. And uh, they also, I think they just have a better handle on their character. Deep Space Nine, because of its serialized nature, has become more of a character-based show than TNG ever was. And in doing that, the writers have become very good at writing these characters, and they know how to kind of throw them into a pot and see what'll work. And if you're, if you're, if you're having, and if. If you have to do an episode like this where you've got uh, two characters isolated with each other, my first choice – I, you know, I, yeah, I was going to say my first choice would be Quark and Odo because they are the ones who probably have the most natural chemistry and have since the first season. Um, but I've, I've I found myself wondering, you know, does that – does that is that chemistry good enough to carry this whole episode? And I guess it's I guess mileage varies. I think they do a pretty good job with it. They have some some good scenes. Uh, it's not entirely just resting on the shoulders of them being charismatic with each other. They do actually get into a couple uh, discussions that are pretty good. The uh, uh, notably the one uh, towards the end where they basically point at the other one and say you're a failure. Um, and it's it's nice. Adjective. 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 <laughs> yeah, it's uh it it ends up going from just like your normal uh uh normal episode of moonlighting to something that actually is kind of profound as far as Odo goes and he he seems to be the one who's getting the most character work this season. Um because he's kind of smug through the whole episode and Quark is ne- he Quark is not in this episode, but Quark tends to be equally smug, but here he's not really that way. Um, so when he gets the chance to pull an actual uh, uh, ace on Odo, it actually sticks pretty pretty well. It's a, it's a pretty good plot point in an otherwise fairly plotless episode. I mean, um, I, I would kind of I would kind of counter that and say like just to get back to the whole like worst TNG thing. And you're right about the cast. I think mm-hmm. the cast in Deep Space Nine. Is probably like blow for blow if you were measuring it the strongest Star Trek cast ever. I don't think they have a standout in the same way that, say, The Next Generation had Patrick Stewart yeah. or the original Star Trek right. had Leonard Nimoy. But I think across the board, 
the Deep Space Nine ensemble is probably the strongest of the ensembles. But I think that it, it, one of the interesting things about that is that, like, you point out, like, TNG did these sorts of plots all the time. And I mean, like, I joked about, like, Riker and Wesley move in together and have to learn to get along. Um, but I mean, mm-hmm. you, you have plots like, for example, Transfigurations devotes an entire subplot to, gee, Geordi's kind of uncomfortable around women. We should probably deal with that while also doing <laughs> homosexual space Jesus. Um, and that sort of stuff. Right, and you have, like, right. that, those surveillance. But they don't, on TNG, they never seemed cumulative. So, like, for example, obviously, Geordi yeah. mm-hmm. did that episode. And then later on, you have, like, the weird episode where, like, the designer of the Enterprise shows up. It's like, by the way, can I view your holodeck programs? And Geordi's like, eh. But, you know, the thing with the <laughs> DS9, and thing that DS9 did very well, is, and I think it's a timing thing, it being, like, halfway between the television of the 90s and, as you point out, the more serialized television that we have now, is the fact that, like, these mm-hmm. little runners and these little plots tended to add up to things. So, for example... Like, you think about, like, the relationship between Cisco and Cassidy Yates, right? Which, that plays out yeah. almost entirely in subplots. It's a subplot when he meets her, he goes on the first date with her in Family Business, which is a Quark-centric episode. And then she announces she's moving to the station in, in Discretion, which is an episode which where the other plot is like, is Dukat going to murder his daughter? Um, And you have this sort of, like, <laughs> willingness to sort of develop these things in the background, but also have them kind of stick as they go. And I think René Aubergonis, the actor who plays Odo, has pointed out that, like, the irony, this is the only episode of Deep Space Nine where Quark and Odo get an actual A-plot to themselves. Over the entire seven-year run of the show, this is the only time where they are center stage in the most important, together, in the most Mm -hmm. important plot of the show. And it's kind of remarkable. And I think that's why Deep Space Nine does these sorts of plots better, is because when it has these things happening in the background, they feel sort of cumulative. I mean, earlier in the episode, like, you know, I know we're not going scene by scene yet, but like the opening scene has like Quark showing up to welcome Nog to the station and giving him several crates of root beer, which is itself Mm -hmm. like a payoff of a number of like small scenes and recurring gags over the course of the show. You know, obviously Nog going off to Starfleet, but that discussion like about how the Federation is represented by root beer. And then, you know, so the gift, this little background detail carries all this weight from these little details that have been sort of bubbling through. So I think that's maybe for me why I don't mind the lightness of it, because it's very good at the lightness and that lightness feels like it actually, it doesn't necessarily become important. I don't think like it spoils nothing, Clay, to say that there's never a moment later in the show where Quark says, well, when we were back on that barren rock, I was thinking, (laughs) uh, but it does, as you pointed out, it contributes an understanding of who Quark and Odo are that kind of carries through the rest of the show. Yeah, I I think in in TNG, you you basically have um, plots that are what-if plots, essentially, where you've got, where it's like, well, what if, what if the holodeck came to life? Or... Uh, what if Riker was trapped inside a prison of his own mind? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Then on Deep Space Nine, you have plots, at this point anyway, that are more often than not character-driven. And uh, it's less what if and more um, and then, if that makes yeah. sense. So, uh, so you have these characters who are, like you said, has a cumulative uh, uh, amount of stuff behind them that then drives them into the conflict that they're, that they have currently. So yeah, you can do, you can do an episode like this where you've just got these two for lack of a better term. I, I, I wouldn't call them side characters in and of themselves, but the way they react with each other is kind of one side character in and of itself, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, so you can take a quote unquote side character and give an a plot to that and have it, have it work. And I don't think that this doesn't work. I think it's, I think it's fine. Um, I think it's fun. I think this episode probably, for me anyway, mm, I I feel like this episode is more of a go back and watch it when I feel like spending time with the characters type episode than it is like a, like, I don't know if I would recommend this episode necessarily. If someone, if someone said, give me a handful of episodes from season five to watch. I, I don't know. I would be, I, I can, I, I can understand why you, why you say you would. I'm assuming you would. Am I'm, I, I'm actually, I'm actually not sure I would. As I, as I pointed out, like yeah. the thing is, if you were to like whittle down Deep Space Nine seasons to 13 episodes, <clears throat> this would be a very easy cut. 
You know, this would be like, yeah. this yeah. is less important than, you know, uh, Apocalypse Rising. It's probably less important to the Star Trek franchise than Trials and Tribulations. You know, it's mm-hmm. maybe not as serious as, as like the ship. So yeah, kind of throw it in a bin. Uh, you know, going back yeah. to it, it's an also ran, that sort of thing. I can see that. Yeah, I, I would say this episode is kind of like a comfort food ep- episode where you are. It's just a it's a fairly light plot, um, <laughs> despite the horrible <laughs> broken leg that happens about halfway through it. Uh, it's a fairly light plot and it's just a, a, a spending time with the characters. And, and I do you fit? Well, we haven't talked about the uh, the 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 uh, B. I guess it would be the B plot. Um, of, the other of B plot. Yeah, the other B plot. Yes, in, a, in an episode of, of double B plots. Um, do you feel like it's? Uh, do you feel like they are too similar in tone, or do you think that the um, the Quark and Odo plot and uh, goes acceptably uh, acceptably dark to kind of um, balance out the goofiness of the other plot? I actually, I quite like the fact that the two plots sort of resonate off one another. I think you're entirely right that, like, this is a plot where, like, despite the fact there is that really grisly leg breaking, nobody watching The Ascent at the time, let alone now, is going, gee, I wonder if Quark and Odo are going to get out of this particular situation. Right, Um, right, And, like, I mean, even the way that the, the episode's written, it's very clearly a case of, like... This is just, we're putting Quark and Odo in this situation so we can watch right. them bounce off one another. It's more important that Quark and Odo believe that they're probably going to die and so can say these things to one another without fear of consequence um, than, you know, than the audience believes they're actually going to die. And I think, like, you're, you're right that this is sort of, like, this is the kind of episode that if you were doing a modern season of television, you could not justify doing because it would take mm-hmm. up, like, one-tenth of your season or one-thirteenth of your season or even at one-fifteenth of a season, it would be too much of a buy. And this is kind of where I'm like, this is where Darren gets a little bit nostalgic. And he's like, you know, 26 episode <laughs> seasons were like really depressing when you did stuff like Star Trek Voyager did with them, where it's like, let's do the same plot 26 times, baby. Um, whereas well, on the other if it, hand, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? That's um, if it ain't broke or if we can't be bothered fixing it, don't fix it. Um, <laughs> but there's also like, because, you know, like you can do if you've got 26 episodes, the urge is always going to be there to do stuff like the anomaly of the week, the planet of the week. That sort of thing, yeah. the time travel plot of the week, the, you know, that sort of stuff, the phenomenon of the week, and just sort of create a formula and put the characters through it and, you know, churn out your script once a week, get it down to production, film it in a week, release it and do that 26 times a year. And um, that's always the urge. And that's why, you know, I don't normally feel very nostalgic for like the old 26 episodes a year sort of model of TV production, but it's episodes like The Ascent that I do actually genuinely feel a pang of nostalgia for because... And it's worth mm. noting, by the way, this is the episode, this episode is written by Iris Stephen Bear and Robert Ewitt Wolf, who are basically the showrunners on Deep Space Nine at this point right, in time. Right. Like when their names show up, it basically shorthand for this is an important episode. They're the guys who write like the cliffhangers. <laughs> they write the season premieres, the season finales. When they write a two-parter in the middle of the season, you're like, well, I should probably pay attention to that. And it's like, yep, yeah, what do you, what do you want? They also write all the Ferengi episodes, which I think gives you uh-huh. an idea of where their priorities lie. So it's kind of interesting yeah. that, like, for Bear and for Wolf, uh, which is, by the way, that sounds like the best cop show ever, Bear and Wolf. Um, but yes. Bear, for, for Bear and Wolf, it's like it's telling that this is something that they think is important enough to merit their attention. That they're like, well, you know, we do all the important stuff, the heavy lifting, the arc building and stuff like that. But it's very important for us to write this episode where Quark calls Odo a fascist. Uh, and Odo, you know, basically, you know, he gets dragged along as if he's food supply. And I kind of I yeah, like that. Sorry, go for it. Sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, I, I could imagine uh, being a fan of the show at the time. Me, personally, as I know that I watch shows, being a fan of this show at the time, seeing their, their names on the credits and being like, oh, man, this is going to be a big one. Yeah. And then it's just Nog and Jake get an apartment? Quark and Odo have an argument that lasts 45 yeah. minutes. <laughs> This 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 is the kind of episode where they uh um they they put the they put this on the note card on the wall and everyone's like they can't pull they they can't get it off the board because they can't pull rank on the showrunners yeah. <laughs> so it's just that one thing where it's like yeah no guys that's yeah let's definitely spend our time sure yes yeah. let's let's do this it's Vince um, Gilligan in you know, the back funny. of the X Files writer room going I want to do a crossover with cops and waiting until yes. he has the power <laughs> to do it. Um. <laughs> 
the uh, um, I you talk about having the luxury to have an episode like this. I I would say they still maybe unintentionally do this on some of their Netflix shows, which always end oh, up yeah. being like three episodes too long anyway. So there's always a couple episodes in the middle where they're just like, well, we've got time to kill. Let's uh, let's let's see what's going on next door. Um, but as far as you know, as far as getting into the Nog and Jake plot, uh, how do you, how do you feel about how do you feel about this plot where uh, Jake apparently passive aggressively leaves clothes everywhere and Nog has returned from Starfleet as I guess the villain from Animal House? It's 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 kind of it's one of those weird things that only Deep Space Nine could really pull off, and I got. I kind of admire the sheer oddness of it. Because again, like as you pointed out, it's the, the worst parts of the episode of TNG. Somebody else who I work with described it as Coronation Street, or for American listeners, Days of Our Lives in Space, uh-huh. is how they sort of view Deep Space Nine on like the ranking of Star Trek shows. And I kind of, the thing is, I quite like a lot of these slice of life episodes, even though, and again, this is probably, I wonder if this is rooted in something like from Bear's history as a television writer. You know, famously, was it, uh, was it, Profit motive, I think, derived from a pitch he originally had for Taxi Driver, or Taxi, sorry. Not Taxi Driver, that's a very different concept. But yeah, the one where, like, Quark's (laughs) boss shows up all of a sudden with a completely different mindset, and he's worried that his brain isn't working properly. That was something that Bear had originally pitched to Taxi. Um, And the idea was that, like, so a lot of this stuff is rooted in sitcom plots. And if you look back at, like, a number of, like, if you look at the Deep Space Nine episode, odds are you can pick out its B-plot as a sitcom plot. Like, think of indiscretion. It's like... Cisco discovers his girlfriend is moving to the station and has commitment <laughs> issues. That's again, yes. that's a standard sitcom plot. It's like it is. What's it? Explorers. It's like Bashir's former high school rival is coming to the station and makes him feel insecure. That's also a sitcom plot as well. Mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. this is very much in the mold of a sitcom plot. It's like it's as you pointed oh, 100%. out, one hundred percent. This is the odd couple times two in space, and it's. Mm-hmm. Again, this is the thing where I'm not sure if it's because I'm a Star Trek fan or because I have a pre-existing connection to these characters. I kind of like this. Because it's like Jake and Nog are basically, as you, like you described Quark and Odo's relationship as side characters. Jake and Nog are of themselves side characters. Now, Jake is in the lead in the opening credit sequence. Sirok Lofton is credited as a lead on every episode. But he appears, I think he appears less frequently. He certainly appears less frequently than Morn. I suspect he maybe appears less frequently than Garrick as we get towards the later season of the show. Mm-hmm. So this is basically two supporting characters who are given the space of 20 minutes in an episode to argue about whose turn it is to do the laundry. Um, and I kind of like, <laughs> I like the Deep Space Nine feels like it has the comfort to do that if only because it like helps sketch the idea of like these two characters existing when they're not doing things that are plot relevant you know when nog's not shouting hard aft captain uh and jake's not like uh <laughs> well dad what's your take on the big issue of this episode i quite like that there's like hey they do have lives outside of being like supporting characters relative to other characters even if those lives are well sitcom character lives well, from the first scene, you know, I, I kind of applied uh, my own uh, internal continuity f- that we've built in this show. And when Jake was like, oh, I'm, uh, I'm getting my own place, Dad, I was like, yeah, you are. I know why you're getting that place. Because you got, you got stuff to do and you don't want to be interrupted. Dabbo and, girls. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'll take this moment to say we have T-shirts on sale and you can figure out what I'm going <laughs> to what I mean by that if you go to the T-shirt website at Teespring, Penske File. Um but uh yeah it's i i kind of found myself during this plot think wishing that they had gone in s- darker more twisted avenues with it because it was such a sitcom plot yeah um that the the scene with uh nog not nog rom and and uh captain cisco oh, where with he's the like yeah, i secretly <laughs> i secretly took a vial of my son's blood i immediately i immediately was thinking man i kind of wish this plot was like nog came back from starfleet and uh, Rom can't deal with like the weird postpartum depression he has of ha- not having his son around, so he thinks that it's a different person. So he's like drawing his blood, and then is like thinks he's a changeling and is out to kill him. Uh, but I thought that I, that's a little dark for Rom, I think, and probably uh, um, the entire episode is Nog like tied to a chair while Rom is like, "Give me the information. Is it safe? Where's my son? <laughs> yeah, what have you done with him? It's a very or dark I guess it would twist. be more like it." More accurate would be like, give me back my son. 
Um, oh. Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how much I really have to say about this this side of the episode because it's it's fairly benign, and I, I and it, yeah, it works. This does feel like a exercise in sitcom writing, um, and it's it's almost like they picked sitcom plots because they knew they would work better because their characters are stronger. Like, as I was saying, they they have such a a grasp on who each of these characters are at this point that you can put them in these fairly cliche sitcom plots and it still works. Um, I mean, that's that's the strength of sitcom plots. It's like, because like the basic arc of sitcoms is like, there are, there are like 12 or 13 different sitcom plots that you have. It's like the gang go to the hospital or, you know, the gang take up a hobby or the gang encounter a threat to them and have to deal with it. You know, it's that sort of thing. Like, it, it's the formula that is, the, you know, all the titles of Always Sunny in Philadelphia episodes. And every sitcom yeah. does those sorts of episodes. And the reason that sitcoms succeed or fail is not because they have, like, an ingenious twist on the premise of those episodes. It's largely down right. to the fact that they have either better characters or better actors or a combination of the two. Like, the great sitcoms are always inseparable from great casts and great characters. Because those plots, oh, yeah, you just plug characters into those plots and they reveal themselves. I think you're right that it's like, I don't know if it's like they understood that the actors were stronger and the characters were stronger and so went with sitcom plots because of that. Or if maybe they went with the reverse logic and Bear understood that like, rather than doing the tech plot of the week or the low stakes shipbound plot of the week, he instead decided a sitcom plot would work better because it would give a chance to do character-based stuff. And I mean, like, you're right that, Mm. like, Nog is, as you point out, the villain from Animal House. And Jake is just, you know, he's a slacker. He's a stereotypical writer. But it's like, this stuff means that when you use Jake and Nog later on, you at least understand that they are those templates and so you can do more advanced stuff with them. Like, I think there's a late fifth season episode that uses Jake and Nog much better, but I think that it works well because, you know, they've established Nog coming back from Starfleet is much more order-focused and Jake, now that he's a writer, is a bit more improvisational, as opposed to when they're both just kids dangling off the promenade, you know, being slightly pervy towards young Bajoran girls who had, you know, <laughs> more important things to be worried about, if we're being frank. And I kind of, so I, I understand the necessity of it and doing it as a B-plot. And I wonder if maybe it's the opposite of what you suggested. It's like, we use these plots because they reveal character rather than because we already have character and therefore these plots will be easy. If that's that makes fair. Sense. I, you know, I, I think that's fair. I think, I think I would say it's, it's, this episode is probably a bit of both, where I think the Quark and Odo plot works because they are such strong characters, and I think you're probably right. I think the uh, Jake and Nog one probably works because that plot allows them to reveal more about their characters that may not already be established. Um, and yeah, if if this is uh, if if this is a status quo shift, for <laughs> lack of a better term, because it's not really much of a shift, but. Uh, um, that plays into how their characters are treated later in the season or later in the series. That's great. I mean, I, that's and that in in that case, I would say it's definitely worth it. Well, I don't want to um, oversell you, Clay, but I'm just I'm, I'm actually running through my head. I'm thinking the last time that we had a Nog and Raw, uh, sorry, a Nog and Jake plot was probably Shudder life support. Uh, in which case, <laughs> I feel like it's probably a good idea to reset that dynamic a little bit. Well, I think it's I think it's a good change because yeah. I. I, I I um I like well first of all first of all even if even if I was Jake even if Nog was my best friend I would not move in with that guy like I, I you, you I wouldn't even have to have gone through that experience to know that I don't want to live with that guy <laughs> um and having him come back from Starfleet as like a weird you know jock frat kid is is a is a nice twist um and it's actually it's very consistent with his character because he he does tend to um i i guess rom does it rom does it to an extent too where but i think nog is a little bit more intense with it where once he uh once he joins a group he is all in on that group um rom rom does it a a little bit less rom does it more uh, this might not make sense, but his uh, uh, um, his his joining groups is more of an act of individualism, if that makes sense, because yeah. he's been so uh, under the heel of Quark that 
moving away from the Ferengi uh, cliche into something else, even if that's another group or another set of rules, for him is an act of individualism. Whereas with Nog, moving to Starfleet is more of like it's it's a it's it's kind of more of a finding finding out who he is, but at the same time, also um, keeping that. Uh, uh, conformity aspect alive by just really, really going all in for it, and just really, uh, you know, ch- he he goes. Uh, wh- as soon as he gets a job at the fu- at the pharmaceutical company, he's coming home wearing Pfizer everything. You know, um, <laughs> he's wearing a suit and tie, even though he's just working the assembly line, sort of thing. Exactly. Um, yes. Yeah. That, that's I, a good way to put it. I actually really like like and the thing that I really like about that though is the sense that like while Nog is absolutely one hundred and ten percent all in on that. You get a number of like very short, like kind of almost even shots and reaction shots at the start of people like Cisco and Kira kind of reacting to it in a way that's just mild bemusement and befuddlement that like added to the image yes. of like and, and yes. Aaron Eisenberg. He's you know he's he's not the biggest guy, so you have this wonderful juxtaposition of Nog, who like if you put Nog standing on the shoulders of another Nog, he'd be about as tall as Jake, positioning mm-hmm. himself as this sort of you know, alpha male kind of hyper-competent, I'm going to clean things up, I'm going to whip things into shape character. Which, I mean, it does give you that nice sort of, like, contrast within the plot that I think helps it be a little bit more than just kind of paint-by-numbers stuff. Right. And I I, I really like the... uh, um the scene with with uh, when Nog first comes back and he has the 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 talk with Cisco in the in in the ready room or his office or whatever it is, and uh, uh, Cisco kind of sort of uh, not sarcastically I don't know what the the what the word is for his expression but he says yeah you're quite an inspiration like very kind of sort of tongue in cheek and then he comes out and Kira asks him how it goes and he's like. He, Captain Cisco told me I'm an inspiration. Like he took it completely seriously, and like that—that's that was that was a great little character beat for him, and and, um, and for all of it, them it, as well. Yeah. Yes, yes. Except for Kira's hair, which they keep changing every single time she's on screen. She has a different haircut. I don't know why they can't figure out what to do with her hair, but it's well, different every episode. I mean, if they didn't, they'd probably have to go back to changing her uniform every couple of weeks, right? Did they do that? I don't even remember that. Do they keep okay. changing they, your uniform? They've changed her uniform a number of times over the show, uh, which I suspect was one of those network mandated. She's a woman on network television in the 90s. <laughs> Can't we make her sexy somehow? Um, what if the Bajorans only wore spandex? Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, there's there's quite a bit of that over Kira's time in the show. It's never quite as blatant as it gets over on Deep Space uh, Voyager uh, next season, where it's like, well... You are a young woman who has never experienced being a woman outside of being a child who was assaulted and transformed into a Borg against your will. How do you feel about wearing lots of really tight spandex around the show, around the set? It makes sense to me. I mean, it, you know, yeah. those it, it Borg suits are pretty form-fitting, so. Yeah, I know. It, it, it gets um, even creepier when you consider that it's like the middle-aged doctor who designs the costume for her. But anyway, oh, that's a different podcast. <laughs> well, he's just a hologram. Yeah. He doesn't know any better. Um so, uh, you know, other thing I was thinking was, uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I think I have an answer for this, to this for myself. And I think I know what your, what your answer would be, but I found myself thinking about halfway through, would this odd couple moving in together plot be more interesting from a character standpoint, if it were Worf and Dax? Because then it basically becomes uh, an episode of of the fix- fictional show I invented called Darmok and Greg, where you've got your two uh, sitcom characters who could not be further from they could not be more different, and now they're living together trying to make their relationship work. Um, that <laughs> have you have you have you seen like this is later in the season than Let He Was Without Sin, right? Do they do that? Do they do they actually do that? All right. Well, have I guess I guess I don't have to talk about this anymore because we'll get to it eventually. Um, no, I thought I thought this was the one where they go to Riza, the one where Worf and Odo go to Riza. So where Worf and Kira, Worf and Dax. Oh, I'll we get just we just did that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's kind of what I <laughs> I imagine that after they did that, they were like, okay, uh, let's just pump the brakes on that one uh, for the yeah. Long. I guess that's true. I guess that would be that would be fairly similar. But I, I mean, that was my first thought. Was like, you know, uh, they uh, the. At least the Riza one is they they are they are both in a different um, uh, uh, looser situation, um, 
that is still fairly uh, extraordinary. Whereas this moving to, moving in together, having an apartment together is a very mundane thing. Yeah. Um, that would be because on the, in the Rise episode, Dax doesn't really have a problem with it with the planet, right? That's the that's the whole yeah. conflict. Is Worf's too uptight, and he killed some kid with his head. Um, and Dax is just more carefree, and you know, is having fun on the sex planet. Yeah. Um, I kind of would be interested to see. The inverse of that, where you've got the two of them moving in together, and you've got your uh, uh, how both of these characters, who are characters of of extremes, have to uh, coexist in a very close quarters, very mundane situation. But I think, as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, yeah, the rise of thing. They've already they've they've spent some time with those two. You probably don't really need to do that. And this is a nice chance to to dip back in on Nog and Jay because I I actually was when when they said oh he's he's moving in with Nog I was like oh I I didn't even realize he was coming back from Starfleet I, I assumed that was just their way of writing him off the show for the most part um, so I think for two characters that have not gotten uh, not I don't know if Nog has had any screen time this season so far and Jake has had very little so I I think it is a good they are a good ch- uh, choice of characters to to put together, I, I think, in this situation. They are indeed, and I mean, like that—that's the thing with Deep Space Nine. And I think this is the difference between Deep Space Nine and the other Star Trek shows. When the other Star Trek shows discovered that like characters either weren't working or they weren't interested in them, they tended to stop writing for them, or they tend to stop trying mm. to do things with them. Like if you look at Voyager, look at the cast there, like Harry Kim, Tuvok, and Chakotay. Those are all characters that the writers were like, "Screw it." We've tried a couple of things. They haven't worked. Let's go back to writing for the Captain, the Borg, and the Hologram. Uh, whereas, like, the thing with Deep Space Nine is is Deep Space Nine tends to... And again, th- like, we're past this in the fifth season. We're in the fifth season now. So they've already done the Dax isn't working, but we're going to keep trying for three more freaking years, damn it. Or, mm. you know how annoying Bashir is? What if he was that twice a year for three seasons, but then we got him right? That sort of aspect of the character. Um and I feel like, you know, there's an element of that with the back. Well, and that's the wonder of doing B-plots like this, is that you can do that. You can be like, well, we haven't done something with Jake, you know, relatively recently outside of the Nor the Battle of the Strong, the one where he's with Bashir during the Klingon War. So maybe we can do something with him at this point in the season and just sort of remind the audience that he exists. And, you know, it's pretty harmless. And, you know, it's kind of like, I think you're right when you say, like earlier in the podcast, you said that, you know, you wouldn't recommend that people watch this if they're watching the show for the first time. But it's quite nice. I think you described it as a hangout episode coming back. Because it's like, mm. hey, I like Jake. I like Nog. I like Odo. I like Quark. It's probably a good idea to sort of, you know, it's a nice way to spend time with them in a low stakes environment where you don't have to, like, have Sirik Lofting crying to himself about witnessing people dying all around him. It's like, well, you know, it's nice that Jake has a little bit of tension about, like, correcting his grammar and, you know, leaving his clothes around. I feel like that's a more relatable Jake moment for me, personally. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I have a uh, um maybe it's an unfair gripe, but uh it, with a lot of um fandom in general, uh the more positive aspects anyway. Yeah. Uh, don't get me started on the negative aspects. Uh the po- it seems to me a lot of times now people would prefer episodes like this or stories like this because you're not actively putting characters that you like in like life-threatening situations. I mean, I guess they do with Quark and Odo, but it's, it, it seems a lot of times to me, like it's, it seems a lot of times to me like, Oh, what if, what if Captain America and Bucky, we, the next movie is just them like playing cards and hanging out for like two hours, you know, like just, just, we get to spend some time with them. And it, it frustrates me as someone who enjoys the way stories work because the best stories are always crafted out of taking a character you like and putting them through absolute hell. And uh, I, I I feel like it's episodes like these work. Absolutely. I think they work um, uh, for exactly the reasons that we've been talking about, but I don't think that they could, they can really be something. Yeah. I think they have to be a bit of relief you know, in, in, in a larger, if you're telling a larger story where you can kind of take a, a minute to breathe and just enjoy these characters before, you know, you throw them back into the meat grinder and see what comes out on the other end. 
Yeah, I mean, like that's that's um, the thing about Deep Space Nine is it bounces between those extremes. Like, I mean, you're yes. you're watching it for the first time, so I'm not going to like spoil stuff for you. But like, so far, you like you've had stories that go from like the you know that big like Romulan Cardassian thing in the Gamma Quadrant where Garrick's like, oh my god, my adoptive dad has completely lost his mind, and I can't actually function in the society that I long to be a part of. And the worst part about my exile is that it's actually the best thing that I'll ever do. And this is giving me a massive existential crisis. And you bounce from that to. Well, Jake and his dad take a magic picnic trip to Cardassia in a solar sailing ship. (laughs) And like, I like that Deep Space Nine has those extremes. And that's not saying that I prefer one extreme over the other. It's saying that they work very well together. So yeah, like I absolutely adore The Ascent, but that doesn't mean that I don't love like coming up later in the season, you know, in Purgatory's Shadow and and by Inferno's Light. Or like I love In the Cards, the penultimate episode of the season. And I also adore Call to Arms, the final episode of the season, even though the stakes in those two episodes, at least in terms of their A plots, are dramatically different to the point of being almost diametrically opposed. I would agree with your criticism of a certain aspect of like fandom and fan culture and fan writing at the moment, where there's this weird mm. anxiety about having bad things happen to characters as if characters yeah. are real people. Cause they're not. Cause yeah. I mean like, and a large part of that is identification. It's like, I care about Jake. I don't want to see Jake hurt. And it's like, I, I understand that. And that's very moving. And it's great that you have that connection with Jake, but Jake is also a fictional character and a fictional character exists in a narrative and a story. And so you tell a story using that. And sometimes that story involves the character suffering, dying, changing, evolving, growing in a way that you as somebody who has that connection with him don't necessarily want or appreciate or, you know, wouldn't intend. And I think that's, that's great. That's the nature of storytelling. Like I, like there's a character on the show. And again, I'm, I'm wary of spoilers because you haven't seen this before, but of whom I adore at this point in the narrative, who's one of the great Star Trek characters who has ever existed. And the writers make a choice with him in the late sixth season where he goes completely cuckoo bananas and it's like, I wouldn't have made that choice, but I respect the choice of the writers to have made that choice, if that mm. makes sense, you know? Um, and again, like, yeah. and even characters who die, like, they're characters in a narrative. I can go back and watch episodes with those characters after they've died. I can read novels right, using those right. characters written before they were killed off. And like, the fact that they're killed off, they're not real people. There's not like a little funeral that I have to go to. <laughs> I don't have to like put all my pictures of them. Because I, you know... I do have a picture of Nog and Jake on my bedside locker, um, but I don't have to put those pictures in drawers <laughs> when those characters are killed off. It's like, no, when Deep Space Nine ends, if I want to watch it again, I just go to Netflix and stick it on. And I kind of, yeah, I, I, I share some of that frustration. Now, I would, you know, I'd probably be more delicate and understanding, but I, I absolutely agree to a certain extent. That's something that I'm wary of in the way that we talk about fictional characters and narratives at the moment. Yeah. Sorry. That, yeah. That's very and, I mean, not not to not to go on a, a total tangent, but now now that we're here, I mean, I started us down this road, so we may as well continue. Um, I've 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 recently in the in the last handful of years really been had a had I've been frustrated with. It seems like the only thing, the only action that becomes a point of of uh, um, uh, not worry, but it, it seems. Worrying what character is going to die is is seems to be the only thing that gets talked about. Like you never you never hear people talk about the the ups and downs of a certain situation. Whatever show it is, if it's coming up to the end of a season, people are like, "Well, who do you think is going to get killed off?" And it's like, "Well, you know, other things can happen, right?" Like it's not the death the death of a character isn't the the only only thing thing. in the storyteller's arsenal. Like it's. I found it exceptionally frustrating when it comes to uh, um, uh, Avengers and Infinity War. Um, yeah. Spoiler alert for Infinity War if you haven't seen it. But uh, the the big uh, uh, the big talking point for a lot of people I've seen on the internet coming out of that is, oh man, well you know all of those deaths. It, it, it's so cheap because you just know that all those characters are going to come back. It's like, oh well, yes. In this case, you do know that, but. The the point of drama is not are these characters going to be come back to life. It's what is it going to cost to bring them back to life. Yeah. You know that's where the drama comes from, and it's this weird thing where the the death of a character is the is the only is the only thing that matters. And it, I I think it's a I don't know if it's the Walking Dead's fault or if it's like the Walking Game Dead Thrones, and Game of Thrones. Yeah. 
or just these shows where they just like just f- cycle through characters, which I don't I don't have a problem with as long as it doesn't feel gratuitous. Um, and both of those shows very much gets to that point in some spe- some parts. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting looking at the way people take in stories and the things that they focus on now. Um, it's all very like, and again, sorry, I know we're down a tangent, so I'll keep this very, very brief. But it's all very, I think, like you point out, death being the only thing that people are concerned about when it comes to stories like this. And particularly when you get to Infinity mm. War, like the big debate is: is Tony going to die? Is Steve going to die? This sort of stuff, as if that's right. the only thing that can happen to those characters that will actually matter. And I think that one of the and it's all and what's funny about that too is it's all entirely based on like contract rumor. It's like, well, we yeah. know we know that that Robert Downey Jr. doesn't really want to do this anymore. So yeah. do you think they're going to kill him off? Chris it's Evans like, well, I mean, they don't, numbers they don't have yeah. to. Yeah, it's it's that sort of stuff. But I think that ties into this sort of weird thing that you have at the moment, where everything has to be like objective and they, uh, it's similar to like again mm. this is going to turn into a whole different tangent but like similar to how people are all about like rotten tomatoes numbers and imdb scores and this sort of stuff and metacritic and stuff like that as like an objective mm-hmm. validation of whether something is good or bad and and like the refusal to accept that like your opinion can be subjective or that like things right. can actually be like you know both good and bad or the things that you object to in principle can be carried off very well in execution it's all a very sort of black and white thing it's binary like the character is living or dead, which is a very narrow way of approaching like character development and storytelling and particularly your priorities within that. And again, I'll, I'll bring this back to Deep Space Nine, actually, just just kind of neatly. And I'm going to try and be coy because I know... One of us has to. One of us has to, because uh, I know that you haven't seen stuff coming up. But like for listeners who are listening to this conversation, particularly when we're talking about the characters that we're talking about this episode, the four of them, um, what you were talking about there where death is not the only thing that can change a character is particularly relevant to one of the four characters where later on Deep Space Nine does something that develops that character in a particularly interesting way. And when you talked about the idea of like, it's not a question of if the characters are going to die because, you know, most of the time they aren't. And like, you know, in Infinity War, that law of averages says like Black Panther's not going to end up dead after having the biggest right. split of, you know, Marvel's first best yeah, picture exactly. nominee. He's not going to stay dead. The drama is in what you pay to get those characters back, narratively speaking. Yep. And Deep Space Nine mm-hmm. understands that as well. I want you to like, again, listeners will know there's a point early in the sixth season where a very similar situation <laughs> happens to the characters where like there's literally a deus ex machina moment. And like the whole thing hinges on the question, not of like, is Cisco going to get out of this situation? Are the characters going to avoid death and destruction? Because obviously they are, because Deep Space Nine is scheduled to air on your local syndicated network at 8 p.m. the following Sunday. The question is, if they do, what is the price going to be? And when are they going to have to pay that price? When's the bill going to come due? Right. And I think that, yeah, that's right. that's a more interesting style of storytelling, because that's based on an understanding of how narratives work. And like to bring it back even more particularly to this episode, right? You're right. You point out that like the nominally higher stakes plot in this episode is the one involving Quark and Odo on the planet, right? Because yeah. that's the one where, you know, in theory, like, they're starving, they're freezing, even though it was shot in California in the middle of summer. Uh, but, like, they're freezing, they're going to die. Except you and I both know, as people who have watched television, we're televisually literate, that, like, this is a mid-season throwaway comedy odd couple episode. There right, is right. no way that Quark or Odo are going to leave the show in this episode. So we know, watching this episode, that they're going to survive. The real dramatic weight of the episode, the meat of this episode, is, as you pointed out, the conversations that Quark and Odo have along the way. And it's that point where they have that really frank discussion, and you alluded to this, is the moment where Odo has this big gotcha moment to Quark, where he's Mm -hmm. like, you're Mm -hmm. such a failure that you can't even be a competent fecking criminal. Right. You you would never even like even when you had money, you would not have enough money to be considered like for this post that you wanted to be a member of the Orion Syndicate, which you clearly yearn to be because like you aspire to be better than you are. And I know that you're a deeply crap person underneath it all. And Quark's killer response, which amounts to, yeah, I'm a failure. I've made my peace with that. But you have spent 10 years of your life trying to catch a failure and you failed at that. That's the moment of the episode. That's the moment where everything lands. It's not, oh my God, are they going to die? It's the moment where you look at the show and you kind of suspect that like on the grand scale of Deep Space Nine's morality, right? Quark is a much, much better and more successful person than Odo will ever be. It's Quark who carries the signal beacon to the top of the mountain. 
Which again, it's worth pointing out that like Iris Stephen Bear and Robert Ewan Wolf, they write the important episodes of Deep Space Nine, but they also write the Ferengi episodes of Deep Space Nine. Like Odo is defined as a character. He's a very Star Trek character in a certain way because he's very much, he's very orderly and by the book. He is the nog of their odd couple sort of relationship. But he's got these like fascistic impulses in him. He's very dedicated to order. There's a point, I think, early in the show where he's like, well, I mean, if you'd let me impose martial law like I wanted to, Captain Sisko, this stuff never would have happened. Um, and like even later in the show, he makes a number of terrible, terrible decisions. He's implicated in like in Necessary Evil. Odo is complicit in the murder of a bunch of innocent Bajorans because it allows mm-hmm. for the like order to be maintained. And like that moment between Quark and Odo and like this entire episode is Deep Space Nine basically putting its cards down and saying, look, we love both Quark and Odo and they're both fundamental failures. But Odo is a much bigger failure than Quark will ever be because Quark Mm. will actually try to do stuff. Quark will actually manage to pull some strength inside himself and generally manage to be a decent human being. Odo, on the other hand, is so resigned and so <coughs> fixated on his ideas of like justice and order and how the world is supposed to be that he won't even try to be different. He won't even try to accomplish something that he believes is impossible. And by that measure, Quark is a much more successful person. And that is much more important than, as you point out, the question of, are Quark and Odo going to die this week? That's a dull question. Right. There's no answer to that question, and it doesn't matter. But... Yeah, is Quark a better person than Odo is a better question. Sorry, go for it. Yeah, and I, I think it, it's it's very consistent with the story that they've been telling with Odo over the season, which is basically Odo doesn't know who he is anymore. And you've got this instance where you put these two characters together where Quark, for all of his flaws, Quark knows who he is. Quark has a pretty, for the most part, I mean, except for the episodes where they require him not to, as they do with all everybody, every character yeah. at some point. But more over overall, Quark Quark knows who he is. He understands what his place is, and he understands w- what his life has amounted to. Um, where Odo doesn't know who he is, and and you think it's the other way around because Quark is such a, a slippery uh, liar and and so shifty about things. But he he is the one who is more secure in the in who he is, and that's where the the nice. Uh, twist of the story and the turn of the story comes that 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 really works, and boy, do they they break the fuck out of his leg though, don't they? <laughs> In case you're anyway. wondering who won this particular argument, we literalized it by having Odo break his leg. Um, I yes. also I also really like the um, and it's a small moment, and it's but it's a very telling moment. It's the bit where after Quark has disappeared and Odo's naturally Odo has assumed that he's failed because Odo is you know not. Like, I adore Odo. Odo's really great. Uh, Rene Aubergenes is fantastic. But Odo's not necessarily the nicest of people. Um, So he's like, uh, hey, uh, by the way, if you find Quark's body, probably about, you know, a couple of feet away from here, that's probably as far as he got. Uh, Make sure to uh, pay, you know, heed to his uh, cultural heritage, his traditions and his spiritual beliefs and uh, try to sell them. Although I will interject at this point and say that they won't be worth anything because he's a complete failure. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. But there's also the really sad bit where Odo's like, just like, when I die, throw my <laughs> remains to dust, throw me in my bucket and send me through the wormhole because yeah, I never felt like I Odo's... belonged. <laughs> Odo, Odo Sorry, basically says the, the, the Danny DeVito line from Always Sunny where he's like, when I die, just throw me in the trash. Well, I think there's something more to that, where it's like he, he again, that's the, I think we talked about it a bit when we were talking about, was it the improbable calls the die is cast? Like, Odo really does want to go home. Odo never felt like he belonged among people. And that's the difference between him right. and, say, like, Data or Spock, where their big arc is always, well, they learn to fit in. Like, Data learns that he was really human all along in every way that mattered, or Spock learns that he has to smile and feel fine every once in a while. Odo's arc consists of him refusing to learn that, and, like, being deeply unhappy because of it where he's like just <laughs> throw me in the trash and launch that mm-hmm. trash back towards my home planet um because screw you guys um i never fit in anyway exactly well i think we've i think we've covered this one pretty pretty substantially so we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with patron thoughts and final thoughts it's about time you woke up i thought you were going to sleep all day you should stretch a little before you start your workout. I think I'll pass this morning. You pass every morning. You can work out for the both of us. 
You don't know what you're missing. A healthy body, a healthy mind. Please, Nog, no cliches before breakfast. Orange juice, extra large. A healthy way to start the day. A writer and a poet. Okay, we've got some patron comments here. And Holly McLaughlin says, The Ascent. Odd couple comedy at its finest. Quark and Odo are both, in their own ways, assholes with hearts of gold. Nog has turned into an obnoxious do-gooder, and seeing their fathers intervene to help preserve their friendship is a nice touch. You know, I, I, um, the one thing I didn't mention was I really liked Captain Sisko in this episode because he only gets a couple scenes, but he plays, he, he's very good at, at playing the dad who is, is sad that his son is moving out, but also like kind of happy that he's kind of getting out there and doing it. I thought, I thought it was nice performance from, uh, from, um, Avery Brooks. Yeah. Um, Christian Pouch, The Ascent, a whole episode of Quark and Odo. Count me in. Equal parts amusing banter and hate. The Jake Nog subplot is kind of forgettable. I know you have to condense drama when you only have part of 45 minutes, but I don't like it when characters just act ridiculous for the sake of causing drama. There's no subtlety there. Um, Stephen Kalb, The Ascent, so very odd couple slash frenemy. Pretty pretty good acting that bordered on campy in places. Yeah, that kind of comes with the territory, I think. Uh, Poindexter G, The Ascent. One of the few episodes to really take advantage of Odo being stuck as a solid. It put him in a situation he never could have been in as a changeling. Quark and Odo are always one of the best pairings on the show. And it's always nice to see them filming on location. While it's not always the best episode, I have to love it for these reasons. I, uh... <laughs> I did feel like the filming on location actually worked against them here because it was clear that they uh, couldn't shoot at night because they were basically just up in the mountains. And so it just it doesn't feel like any time has passed. It just feels like it's been perpetually noon. It is. And there's that great line where it's like, how can it be this cold when the sun is out? Yeah. And the answer is because <laughs> you're filming in California. Um. Yeah, they're going they're going up to the top of this mountain, which anywhere in the country or, or I guess, well, I guess a different planet, but uh, a mountain that high should have snow on it, regardless of the time of year. So the uh, the fact that they are going to this like Everest style peak <laughs> and it's just like it looks like a very nice day of 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 northeastern United States camping. Um, it kind of undercuts what they're trying to do a little bit. I would just uh, on, Matthew- on that comment, actually, I really like the observation that, yeah, this is one of the few episodes that could only work with Odo as a solid, because um, it feels like that's something the show never really took advantage of as much as it could. Um, and I kind of like that it's a, it's a plot point here. Yeah, definitely. Matthew Ross, The Ascent, essentially two versions of The Odd Couple in one episode. Jake and Quark are Oscar and Nog and Odo are... <laughs> Sorry. Jake and Quark are Oscar and Nog and Odo are Felix, just on different locations. The order of Captain Dad saves saves a friendship between Jake and Nog as one solution. The fact that Quark and Odo hate Sorry, I'm having trouble reading this one because I'm I'm going blind. Uh the fact that Quark and Odo hate each other in their adventure is the other solution. Hate each in their <sighs> You gotta work on your sentence structure, Matt. Uh Quark and Odo's realization that they are not as clever or important as they think is the real humor of the episode. Still enjoyable, but not a stellar story. Um, Neil Brennan, The Ascent. This is all perfectly nice and well acted, but where's my Dominion War? All caps. <laughs> Kyle Barrett, rather than, rather than The Ascent, I wish the episode was more like the Neil Marshall film, The Descent, <laughs> and had Odo and Quark face off against cave-dwelling monsters. But you can't have everything you wish for. It's a fun show that reaffirms Quark and Odo's relationship now that they don't spend as much screen time together as they did in the early seasons. I now really enjoy the Jake and Nog plot, but I didn't when I first watched the show. I can now relate to it because when my childhood best friend returned from the Navy, he was a very different person. Speaking of Jake, the fuck machine, t-shirts now available, finally gets his own quarters. I'm sure if you shine a black... (laughs) God... I'm sure if you find, if, I'm sure if you shine a black light in there, it'll look like a Jackson Pollock painting. <laughs> I did admire fair- not sort of restraint in refusing to comment on how sticky the clothes felt, but anyway. <laughs> 
Also, he put, why did he put clothes in the replicator? Like he went in, in the course of like a day, he just walked around pulling out clothes and throwing them around the house. Yeah. I don't know. I, did, I don't I, know who he was trying to make a point to, but these are my mid afternoon pants. Thank you very much. <laughs> also, farewell to the best Starfleet uniforms. I like the replacement ones, but for, prefer these uniforms. Yeah, I saw that this is the last episode with the the uh, DS9 classic, and the next episode they move to the uh, first contact uh, uniforms. Um, yeah, I I I I really like the DS9 ep- uh, uniforms. I think those are probably my favorite version of the of the Star Trek uniforms. So it'll be uh, it'll be sad to see them go. I I quite like the first contact. I'm gonna. Pump my fist for the first contact uniforms. I think that I think that they work very well because they they speak to two different versions of the show. Like the thing, the great thing about yeah. the the Deep Space Nine uniforms as they are now is they're like work overalls. In fact, they actually feel like like they're designed to hide dirt. You can't imagine right. Picard wandering around Deep Space Nine all day without ending up with a stain or two on his shirt. Whereas the the black <laughs> uniforms that you well, have now, it's like well, you can you can just roll up the sleeves like O'Brien does with them. Yeah, but, exactly. I like the first contact ones because they sort of like, and again, this is probably, you know, you heard Dominion War there in the comments, but it's like, it becomes a much more militaristic show. And the first contact uniforms, Mm. because they're sort of standardized and because the colors are minimized within them, always looked a bit more military style to me. Um, And I sort of, so I sort of think they worked well in that context, a a darkening of the palette for a darkening of the show's tone and theme, maybe. Yeah, that makes sense. I, uh, my only, my only reservation is that um, it's the first step towards more or less taking color out of Star Trek, where from this point forward, all of the uniforms become a lot darker and the color gets relegated to like the, the turtleneck. Oh, the, the, the and, and then eventually that. you've got Enterprise where it's not really, they're all kind of the same color with a little bit of piping and now on Discovery, the same kind of thing. That's why Captain Pike was such a breath of fresh air because it was just this big burst of color in the middle of, blue with some highlights you know so it, it, i am I, your sunshine I, yeah i do also like the first contact ones a lot so i i it's not going to be that big of a change for me but um yeah uh i do like star trek to be a little colorful anyway um do you want to have any final thoughts you want to give a rating on this episode um for a rating i'd probably give this an eight or a nine uh, in terms of final thoughts i actually just if you had if you had to pick between one and five Oh, okay. Well, hey, Clay, I, I don't think I can do that. Well, I guess then I go with a 4 or 4.5. Darren, mm, right. do division good, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> probably put it to 4 or 4.5. Um, just because, yeah. again, I, I like the sort of the character-driven aspect of it. I like the quietness of it. And again, I'll admit a lot of this may be nostalgia, because this is, for me, what you do right with a 26-episode season as opposed to, you know, and I sort of, I miss that you couldn't really do episodes like this. You can't really do episodes like this anymore. And I kind of miss that aspect of it. So I'm willing to admit I may be completely wrong. I am not completely wrong, but I may be. Um, <laughs> in terms of final thoughts, just very quickly and very briefly, uh, I, al- I also really love that final scene between uh, Quark and Odo where they're lying in bed in the Defiant sick bay, And they have this moment where it's like, you know, all that stuff we said to each other was kind of horrible, right? like i want you to know i meant every word of it and it's it's a beautiful scene because it completely avoids the sort of like feel good trite sort of like occasionally really cheesy dialogue you would get on say the next generation or yeah. voyager where it'd be like i know i said some things back there i didn't mean them that sort of stuff or you know you really impressed me quark you really went above and beyond what i thought you were capable of doing and have thus changed my complete understanding of you as a you as a person um it's it's much more organic and it feels much more real but it also, like, it does that thing that Deep Space Nine does, and I think this is tied to what you mentioned, it being much better a character than the other Star Trek shows, where it allows for a certain sense of ambiguity, where, like, watching that, I am not entirely sure how much Quark and Odo really do hate each other. Personally, I think that yeah. Odo hates Quark a lot more than Quark hates Odo. I think Quark actually quite likes Odo. But I think that they don't hate each other as much as they let on. But I think it's a brave choice at the end of an episode like this to have the characters lie or have the characters give a statement and trust the audience to pick apart that statement and make their own judgment based on it. Because a lot of Star Trek dialogue, like in particular The Next Generation, I love The Next Generation to be clear, is very much like, this is how I am feeling at this moment in time, delivered in dialogue. Um, with no ambiguity, what is this subtext even, of which you speak? And and even when they don't say that, they have a character a character whose whole yeah. job is to say that for yeah. other people. Diana Troy's literal job is to say, 
I know that Will said that he wasn't feeling bad about this, it, yes. but in case yeah. Jonathan Frakes couldn't convey that through his acting, allow me to render <laughs> it as text. Um, and I, kinda, I, eyebrows, I love that ending. Eyebrows can only go so high, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I also, I think, I think having them say that at the end also just, it tells you more. It's, it's, it's so much more loaded than if, if they just were like, yeah, you did a really good job out there. Cause yeah, you're, you're right. That feels disingenuous, but having them stick to their guns is, tells you, is, is much more of a, uh, of a satisfying character moment and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I would probably give it a three. Like, yeah, I, I don't have quite the nostalgic touch, uh, attachment that you do. Um, I think it's fine. Um, I think it could it it could be an episode that you, you might go back and watch uh for to like like I said it's a very comfort food episode it's a nice nice hangout with the characters and you get some good little uh, uh character acting from from everybody in it so I think it, it it's it's pretty solid. Um yeah so I think that's going to that's going to do it. Uh Darren do you have anything you'd like to plug before we head out? Um, well, at the moment, I am co-hosting a podcast called The 250 with my best friend, Andrew Quinn. Uh, we are currently discussing the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. Um, so we are releasing this roughly <laughs> that's, the that's mostly, recording. It's Sorry, mostly Christopher Nolan movies and like Apocalypse Now and The Godfather, right? Yeah. Um, the that, only foreign uh, that, films that, are Akira Kurosawa films. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's a really fascinating list. Like, it's it's really a microcosm. I've said this before on the show, but you can really... You can really kind of figure out who the people are voting on this list by the movies that are in that are in like the top ten. <laughs> That's it exactly. It's a very revealing list. Like it's a list of a certain part of the internet subconscious where you're sort yeah. of delving into it. Um, it's very different from the sight and sound or the AFI lists as well. And it's kind of interesting when you watch the the list as it changes as well, because this was like one of the reasons that we we chose this list rather than other lists was because it changed all the time. Which we kind of regretted yeah. when we realized we would be doing this until the end of time. But at the time, it mm-hmm. seemed like a cool idea. So it's like in the past couple of weeks, we've had like the films that have come in include Into the Spider-Verse, which is a superhero film. So obviously, oh, excellent. but like uh, Roma, which is, you know, a foreign language, black and white film in Spanish wow. and Mextech, which I was very glad to see. And uh, Green Book, shocked. which is a much more conventional film. And then you kind of so you get to see a lot of this sort of stuff happening there. You get to see like a change in the way that people are talking about films. Stuff like say, Call Me By Your Name coming in, which isn't a film I would have ima- wouldn't have, would have imagined seeing on a list that is, as you pointed out, reflects a certain kind of mindset of, of audience goer yeah. and sort of film watcher. And so it's kind of interesting That's to shocking. watch in real times like that. That's wow. That sounds cool. I'll have to check that out. Um, uh, when are yeah. we releasing this actually, do we know? Sorry to... I have no idea. Oh, okay. I, I don't know what... <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't remember where we are in the timeline. Um, Perfect. Um, a very Voyager episode. We're stuck in a perpetual now. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, whenever you're listening to this, listeners, uh, that's it. But yeah, so we release on Saturdays. Um, so cool. uh, please feel free to give us a listen. Yeah, check that out. It sounds great, Darren. Thanks so much for for coming on. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Clay, I want you to know when I told you that I hated you. Hmm. I meant it. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it because this episode already went better than the uh, last episode I hosted by myself, if only because you watched the right episode. So (laughs) that's going to do it for us on the Penske file today, and we will see you next time. And I can't remember what the next episode is, so uh, cliffhanger. It's Rapture. Rapture. Oh, good to know. See, that's why we have you around. All right. Thanks, guys. See you later.